Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast where we go ad fontes to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is. As he has revealed himself to us, my name is Tyler and we are continuing through the book of Job. And we are trucking through chapter 7, which is the conclusion of Job's initial response to Eliphaz. And with chapter 7, we kind of get into some difference of subjects to where it's not really directed at Eliphaz, but it's just Job speaking in general. So we got into a portion of it last week, but we're going to pick up right where we left off last week at verse 8 and go all the way down to verse 16. And it reads... I'm sorry, verse 7 to 16, and it reads, Remember that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never again see anything good. The eye of anyone who looks on me will no longer see me. Your eyes will look for me, but I will be gone. As the cloud fades away and vanishes, so the one who goes down to Sheol will never rise again. He will never return to his house. His hometown will no longer remember him. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you keep me under guard? When I say, my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I prefer strangling, death, rather than life in this body. I give up. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. Lots of fun stuff. And so we've seen some stuff in <clears throat> in Job 7 that is reminiscent of Ecclesiastes. And I think Solomon gets some of his language and some of his ideas, honestly, from Job. I think Job came first and became an influence to Solomon as he is puzzling through a lot of the same questions that Job had, just more generally. So starting at the beginning, remember that my life is a breath. Which brings us back to the beginning of Ecclesiastes. With with vapor, with hevel, that that key word, vanity of vanities, um, as the King James puts it. It's a word that most English translations really struggle with. And they kind of interpret it on some level already because it's poetry and it's very poetic in the way it's written. The word is vapor or smoke. And so you could be painfully literal and say 
vapor of vapors, all this vapor, and that doesn't quite roll off the tongue as well. But it's, um, some say vanity, I think the CSB says absolute futility. But the, the issue here is, what does that illustrate? Remember that my life is a breath. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain for all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So Job says, my life is but a breath. And my eye will never again see anything good. And we've really struggled with this chapter in Job because it's not very hopeful, it's not very encouraging. Job is in the pit. And he is speaking as a person in the pit. And in some sense, he seems to almost surrender here, if that makes sense. Not so much to God's sovereignty, but he surrenders to the idea of death. Surrenders to the reality that his life is but a breath. The reality of his eventual death. Of his impermanence. James chapter 4. If we go over to James for a brief moment here. James chapter 4, verse 13, says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city, and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good, and yet not do it. Your life is a vapor. This is a theme that seems to run through much of the Bible, Old and New Testament. The eye of anyone who looks on me will no longer see me. Your eyes will look for me but I will be gone. As a cloud fades away and vanishes, so the one who goes down to Sheol will never rise again. That's something I've been pondering a bit this week, is my own imp impermanence, is my own eventual death. There's an interesting phrase in John when Jesus is appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. And he tells Peter, you will stretch out your hands, and others will clothe you, and they will take you where you do not want to go. And then John puts a little side note there that says he, he said this to show him the sort of death by which he would glorify God. And that has often struck me, because when do I ever think about my death as bringing glory to God? When do I ever think of Lord of Christ being Lord of my life and also my death? When do I consider my death? Honestly, not often enough. And, and for many of us, it's the same way. When do we think about death? When do we think about the end? Because everything in our society seems geared towards just enjoying this middle space. We don't really think about the future. We don't think about the past. We're, we're just camped out right here. But Job says, remember that my life is but a breath.
do we do that? As we worked through the book of Ecclesiastes last year, I became accustomed to saying this phrase to myself, memento mori, memento vitae, which is Latin, and it means, remember, you must die. Remember, you must live. That encompasses a lot of what you get in the hard part of Christianity is you will die, yes, and but you will also live. And both of these things can be done either in Christ or out of Christ, either with hope or without it. And with Job, he seems tempted to die without hope. He does not see the good in this. He doesn't see God's hand in this except as some kind of adversary, as, as the problem. In a sense, he is shaking his fist at God, saying, How dare you? Leave me alone. As a cloud fades away and vanishes, so the one who goes down to Sheol, which is the Jewish word for hell, for the place of the dead, so the one who goes down to hell will never rise again. And that, that gets complicated because the Jews didn't have this understanding of hell necessarily as Christ presented. There's not a whole lot of talk about hell and the afterlife in the Old Testament. That's not because it's not real. It's just not something God had revealed in that moment at that time. But the person that talked about hell the most was Jesus. And so here, it's, it's a mystery. What comes after death is a mystery. Solomon works through this a good bit. We do not know what comes after us. And such is the stance of Job. He who goes down to the place of the dead will not rise again. And as believers of Christ, as people who have received the gospel, who have received the person and work of Jesus, who died for sin and rose again, we have to ask that question, is that true? The one who goes down to the place of the dead will never rise again. Is that true? He will never return to his house. His hometown will no longer remember him. I read something from John Christostom today that said that if we realized just how quickly people forgot, would forget us, we would seek to please no one but God. Because God's eternal. But does the one who goes down to Sheol never rise again? How does the grave fit into Job's theology in comparison with ours? Is there a, res is there a resurrection? I think this is something that will come up again with Job. There's that famous section that many of us know in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that I shall stand on, on the earth. Before we get there, we've got to deal with this. We've got to deal with the gravity of death. He will never return to his house. His hometown will no longer remember him. Compare that with Psalm chapter 16. Verse 10 says what for you will not abandon me to Sheol you will not allow your faithful one to see decay and of that David spoke of Christ that he was not abandoned 
into Sheol, he was not allowed to see decay. Which was written a very long time ago. This is old poetry here, speaking of Christ. And this is cited by Peter in Acts chapter 2. He didn't write about David, because David is sleeping with his fathers. But this Jesus, whom you crucified, God ha has raised up. The Father has raised him up and give as God and Lord. As Lord and Messiah. And it says they were cut to the heart and asked, what, sh what must we do? And he said, repent and believe. Be baptized. Receive the Holy Ghost. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for those who are far off. What? That Jesus is alive. That he is who he said he was. And he did what he said he would do. That those who were dead could live. John eleven twenty five says... He that believeth in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. Speaking to Lazarus' sister. And Jesus flat out asks her, Do you believe this? Do we believe that there is new life? That there is something new that God is doing? Does Job believe this? In this moment, I'm not sure. Does he truly believe that God is making things new? That there is a better a better outcome. I don't think he does. Because like I said, I think he is shaking his fist at God as almost as if, How dare you? Leave me alone. Verse eleven Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea monster that you keep me under guard? When I say my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I prefer strangling death. Rather than life in this body. That's a hard place to be. Like there's a lot in Job that we can we can relate to. When when we get into things like depression, Job hits home. There's a lot with Job that sounds familiar. That when you get to that point where dying seems rational. Seems easy or appealing. Sometimes we we feel like Job when he says, I give up. Leave me alone, God. Why, for my days are a breath. Leave me be. So if our life is such a breath, such a blip on the radar, what hope is there? What hope is there for Job? What could Job look ahead to in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his anguish and his misery, when he is experiencing a living death, <clears throat> when his inheritance is maggots, 
and suffering and misery. Where is the hope? For that, let us turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20 says, Christ has been risen, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, being Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's a very Jewish statement, because they had this practice, in accordance with the Old Testament law, that the first fruits of the harvest were not theirs, that the first fruits of the harvest were given. And so Christ is portrayed as the first fruits of the harvest that is given. And there will be more after. <clears throat> For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Because Christ came first, and then those who belong to him. And then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under them, under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be in subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. In short, because Christ is not dead, we that are in Christ will not stay dead. We back up to verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so, in a sense, the basis for our hope of resurrection, of being made new, is entirely tied to the fact that Christ was raised. That he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep of Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But 
Christ has been raised from the dead. And that makes all the difference. That just as Christ was raised, so we will be raised. So we will be made new. Because he was not allowed to suffer corruption. But God gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he ascended into heaven. Having done what he set out to do. Having finished the work that he set out to do. Putting to rest that he is who he said he is. <clears throat> that he was the word made flesh. He was God incarnate. He was the day to which Abram looked ahead to and was glad. Because before Abraham was, I am. That he is the fullness of every Old Testament prophecy ever written. That he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. This Jesus suffered and died for those who were already dead spiritually you and I are aside from Christ we are spiritually dead that we are physically alive but where it counts the most we are as if dead and so Christ came became a human being and died why to bring us unto himself to draw us to him to make a way for us to be saved, to be spiritually resurrected, to be made new. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so Christ died, but he was raised because he is God and is proclamation of what would be true about us. That just us as Christ was raised, so we will be raised, so we will be made new. And we look ahead to that day when that is brought to fullest completion. If we go over to Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, which is the Greek equivalent of that Hebrew word in Ecclesiastes, hevel. For the creation was subjected to futility, to vapor, to a breath. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is not seen, hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees. Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This is what we look ahead to. When we suffer as Job, when we are in the pit, 
when we long for the, the, the so-called sweet release of death, when we feel we are subjected to nothing but decay and our inheritance is bugs and our own eventual demise. There is a, a coming day when God will make all things new. When we will not suffer decay or corruption, but we will be raised to a newness of life prefigured by Christ's own resurrection. We won't be Christ, but we will be brought to a point that we can worship Christ in his natural environment. That the sin that once entrapped us, the sin that hindered us from coming to God, will not exist. And so we will dwell with God in his environment, just as he came into ours. And so the, the, the solution to Job, the pastoral problem with Job, is being able to hold things in two hands, of knowing death is appointed unto all men, and then comes judgment, but also knowing that Christ came that we would be made new, that we would have life, and have it abundantly. And as we transition to this next week, consider that. Consider the fact that we will die. We will suffer decay. Unless Jesus tarries, we will suffer decay. Physically. But there's also a day when, when the dead of Christ will rise. We will be his in an environment where sin and death will not be. Ponder that. Treasure that. That Christ is making us new. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.